Well, happy Monday. Hi, guys. Temperatures have fallen way back. I mean, it's only supposed to be like 90 today. Wow. Isn't that something? <laughs> <laughs> so we'll take it, though, won't we? We sure will. We sure will. We'll bank these days. Yes. Yeah, we will. So, yes, yes, yes. So glad everybody is here. We're going to be back to Isaiah today um, in this middle section on the servant and stuff. So let's see. What's new? Ah, your sister comes today. My Joni comes today with her husband, Wally, they're on for, the drive for a nice right visit. Yes. They're driving up today for Pensacola. Be here for a few days. Yes. Um, what else is new? We had a really busy St. Andrew weekend. We did, yes. We, we did. did. Scott preached Friday night, and then he preached... Might have been Saturday. Oh, sorry. I'm telling you, the days have just run into each other. Um, we've been busy also working on some other ministry stuff. But, on yeah, on Saturday he preached, and then back on Sunday morning, and then, of course, had the class on Sunday. And then last night we had an Israel meeting for um, those who could attend that are going to Israel with us. And when that meeting was over, I bet this won't surprise anybody, that I suggested, and I was driving. We went right to Glorious. I was hungry. <laughs> I, I needed more. I needed something to eat, even though we had these little Oops. box salads or Sorry. something there at that place. I'd worked up an appetite. So I thought about going to McDonald's and just slamming down a McDonald's burger, but no, Patty made a better choice. I reminded him they only make Glorious <laughs> margaritas at Glorious. <laughs> Think what it would do for McDonald's. <laughs> they, they would tip the scales. So, so we hope well, you all are doing well. Yeah. I saw that the Revere's are back, and um so glad you guys are back. I enjoyed watching all your pictures and stuff that you all and your family were posting, and you guys are great grandparents that you did that heat and humidity in Disney for that long, but I bet you made a lot of great memories. That's it, yeah. making memories. Yeah, and we're glad everybody else is back. I saw Mona had been away, but she was yeah. in a cool place. She was, she was up in Nebraska. Wow. But the weather was cool while wow. she was there. So, so yeah. Yep. I think we're, I think we're doing good. We're we're going away in two months. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be cool. We're just going, yeah, just going up to the Ozarks for a little bit, but it's not going to be cool it's where we are. Not going to be cool. No, no. but anyway. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It might be a little cooler in New York in the beginning of September. Yeah, it might yeah. be cooler here in September, too. That's Who knows? True. I, I'm just saying because that's my 40, yes. 50th, 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 not high school, eighth grade, eighth grade graduation. And um, I know that sounds crazy, but when you went to the same school with the same hundred kids from first to eighth grade, you know, they're, they're the people I can picture. It was a Catholic school. Most. Catholic school. Sister Mary Margaret of the Weeping Willows. No. <laughs> St. <Saint> Patrick's. <laughs> anyway okay let's let's stop let's stop let's pray gracious lord we are grateful to be back here today and uh, to resume our journey through isaiah in this this servant section and as we go through this it will be increasingly difficult or uh, let me rephrase that it will be increasingly easy to see in it your son jesus christ um as that servant, that servant who is a light to the Gentiles, a light to the world, that servant who would suffer and um, even be slaughtered. And we just ask that as we go through these coming chapters that you would open our hearts and our minds to you, you would open up these chapters for us and um, help us to uh, get a lot out of it. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, all righty. I'm gonna head over to the other side. 
Okay, so, let's see. How is everybody? We're, we finished up last time in chapter 49. Um, and so what I want to do, though, is I think I want to go back. Okay, let's go, Mr. iPad. Okay, I want to go back to chapter 49, verse 1. It's just the first six verses or something about the servant because we really need to get that get that in our hearts and get that in our minds because the servant is going to become more and more prominent in 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 Isaiah and then then we'll drop back I'll just talk about what follows and then we'll come back to where we stopped last week so let's just hear again um, the words from the servant so this is God speaking Maybe I should say, this is really the servant speaking. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, Yahweh called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. And he said to me, you are my servant. Israel in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. And yet what is due me is in Yahweh's hands, and my reward is with my God. And now Yahweh says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob, that is Israel, back to him, and gather Israel to himself, including the captives in Babylon, of course, for I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and God has been my strength. He says, that is, God says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring the, back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Because that is the larger project, right? So whenever you're you're coming to your Old Testament and you're reading about Israel and you're trying to make your way through some of these books of the prophets, it will help to always have in mind this the larger project, which is God's reconciling humanity to God's self. That that that's why God went to Abraham. That's why God said to Abraham, um, uh, in you and your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's why he gave Abraham descendants more numerous than the stars. It is what is going on here. God's desire for these people to be a holy people, to live as, as God created them to live, to live as they promised to live. It's all about, it's, yes, it's about them, of course, I understand, but it's about the larger project. They need to be they need to be able and ready to be the people God needs them to be. They need to be ready and able to be the, what God needs them to be. And the great tragedy of, it, of the Old Testament is that they are not. That's the tragedy. They are not. And so God will provide one faithful Jew in the person of Jesus who will be that. So... That's the servant. So we're going to keep meeting this this servant. Okay, let's just 
go ahead and read verse read on to verse 7 because that's the end of that little section this is what Yahweh says the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation to the servant of rulers kings will see you stand up princes will see and bow down because of Yahweh who is faithful the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you and as I said last week you know there are different ways to understand who the you is here, right? And certainly, I think um, most people would see that in Jesus' day, his fellow Jews would see the you as being Israel. There might be some who would see the you as being the Messiah. But nobody thought the you could possibly refer to a crucified person. And hence, most of many of them rejected Jesus as, as this Messiah. So, the, the, these are, we're in these servant passages. So, the, what happens next is that God returns to trying to get the people to trust God's promises that he is going to bring them back from Babylon to Jerusalem. That these are promises that God will keep. And in the course of this, there have been questions offered up. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about that? <coughs> to God. And God has answered those, those, right? And said, yes, he's going to bring them back out of love, like a mother. He's going to bring them back. So where we ended last week and where I want to want to pick up now is um, verse 19. Sorry for those sneezes. It's okay. You all right over there? <laughs> Things are okay? Everything's fine. My sister, sorry, was just calling from the road, giving me an update on their travels. So we're good. Sorry. Okay. No problem. Glad they're still doing okay. Okay. So we're at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 19. So these are going to be words of bringing the people home. They're going to be so surprised at how the population is going to grow. It's going to seem like, and just seem like it's, how are they even going to, how are the, how are these restored cities even going to keep all the people that are born there? Um, so, verse 19. Though you were ruined and made desolate and your land laid waste, now you let's say Jerusalem, make this simple, will be too small for your people. And those who devoured you will be far away. The children born during your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, this place is too small for us, give us more space to live in. So these are the children born in Babylon, I come back and things are so fruitful, so overflowing, they need, they need space. They need room. And then God says, then you will say in your heart, well, who, who bore me these? How did I end up with all of these people and all of these children and all of this fruitfulness, right? Because remember, go back to Genesis 1. What are the humans supposed to be? Fruitful. Fruitful. <laughs> <laughs> Multiply. I was bereaved and barren, 
in exile, right? I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone. But these, where have they come from? And this is what the God, this is God's answer. This is what the sovereign Yahweh says. This is what your God says. See, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. Kings will be your foster fathers. Their queens will be your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. So these are dramatic images of the return from exile and even the kings coming to bow down, um, coming before these previously exiled people, bringing their children home, bringing everything home, really. Um, and then there's a question. Well, oh, 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 wait, God. Wait, 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 God. Can plunder be taken from warriors? Can captives be rescued from the fierce? And this is what Yahweh says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. I will make your oppressors Eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. I'll talk about that in a minute. Then all mankind will know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Egypt. Of Jacob. <laughs> of Jacob. So, yeah. So, throughout the last couple of chapters, three chapters or so, there's been these questions posed to God, and then God answers them. And it, as Susan Morgan lifted up last week, I think, that it is difficult sometimes to sort out who's speaking when and where. It is. And so we need help. We need help in study Bibles, um, commentaries and things um, that reflect the work of people who have poured over this trying to understand. Um, and I've come to appreciate the fact that we have to be modest in our confidence about the answers to all the questions we have about exactly the way to in, to interpret this we we just don't so look at look at verse 26 i will make your oppressors eat their own flesh they will be drunk on their own blood as with wine so what is that about well it's certainly graphic Pretty gruesome, huh, Patty? Sounds awful. Yeah, sounds a little bit like Revelation 17. It's it's gruesome, it's graphic. But what is it about? What's the meaning of it? And as you might guess, different men and women who have spent their careers studying Isaiah have come to different answers. Now, I think the best of them is this. This is a way to refer to Babylon eating its own. Babylon consuming itself. Babylon collapsing of its own weight would be a way we might use it today. Just kind of 
just kind of collapsing inward. And I was trying to think of an example in my lifetime of a large country that really just collapsed of its own weight, that just ate its own flesh, drank its own wine, and just collapsed. And the obvious one for me was the Soviet Union, who, because of lots of reasons, including their oppression of um, the people, their completely unworkable systems, their bizarre understanding of what truth is, the ease with which they lied to themselves in the late 80s, the Soviet Union just collapsed. Kind of pushed into it, I understand. But there was no overt open war with troops and guns. Nobody did to the Soviet Union what Putin is doing to Ukraine. It just collapsed. And out of that collapse emerged a number of different countries, Ukraine being one. So it's um, it has happened. It will continue to happen. And of course, if you know the history of this part of the world at the time of the exile, Babylon does basically collapse. The Persians are able to take over the Babylonian Empire, and the Babylonian Empire never becomes an empire again. So... Mona says that her study Bible says that during the siege of Jerusalem, people were reduced to cannibalism. Yeah, there are those who think this is this passage is about um, cannibalism. But look at 26. It says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. That's not Jerusalem. The, you know, cities under siege would sometimes resort to it, but rare would be people who ate their own flesh. So... That all that pushes me to, to thinking it's 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 a metaphor for talking about the collapse of Babylon. Anyway, see, there we go. See, people who study this <laughs> have different opinions. So, you know, we can't ever think that we can just always figure out exactly what the right answer is. Sometimes we can, but in much of it we can't. Okay. So now we turn to chapter 50, which is about the servant again. It is about waiting for God, waiting on God, which is a phrase you hear from time to time. It means that you, you are confident that God's purposes will prevail. And that confidence leads you to be willing to wait rather than try to take everything into your own hands. For example, here's my one classic example is the story of Abraham and Sarah. So, so Sarah, they're both very old. They're both childbearing years. God has told them they're going to bear children. They both at different times fall on the ground laughing at the prospect of it, basically. And Sarah decides, okay, I know how this is going to happen. I'm going to send in my servant girl, Hagar, and she is going to get pregnant by my husband, and she will give him the son, and by our legal customs, he will be my child. Well, okay. 
I've always thought that was kind of understandable, but it proved to be wrong. She should have waited, because what God wanted and what God gave them was a child who would be the offspring of both Abraham and Sarah. Not just Abraham, both Abraham and Sarah. And sure, of course, we could all sit around and talk about, well, like, how do we know how to wait? How do we know what we should do? This and that. But this idea of, of, of sort of being willing to wait on God really reflects one's confidence that in the end, God's purposes will, will prevail. You don't know what, you don't, I don't, I don't know what that might mean in different circumstances, but it may be it's a call to avoid rashness. Because rashness is always, you almost always leads to a, a bad end. But here God wants them to be confident um, and, uh, and to assure them that they will be vindicated in their confidence in God and their waiting on God. Um, okay? I guess it's kind of like where we just get so impatient, we think that God needs our help. <laughs> and so, um, right, right? Look, that, that story. And then I was thinking of Jacob and Esau, the same thing, that how, you know, Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, fooled, fooled the old man. Fooled the old man. But Esau had also been very rash about mm -hmm. things, right? Yes. And yes. so, you know, the, those stories are so wonderful because there, there, there is so much in them that triggers all kinds of questions in us to which we don't always have, we don't have easy answers. Um, God doesn't need our help, but at the same time, our work with God, our work with the Holy Spirit is a joint project. So we don't really, we don't really say, well, you know, let go and let God. That isn't really how it works in the New Testament. That's not a works of Paul's letter. The Spirit empowers us, but but it's but but we work together with God. Otherwise, God could just pull out a magic wand and do whatever God wants. But no, God insists upon calling us to be witnesses to Jesus across the planet, to go make disciples, to baptize, to preach the gospel, to feed the hungry, and all the rest of it. So, there we go. All right, so let's look at chapter 50. This is what Yahweh says. Uh, I'll, I'll explain this. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Okay, in the law of Moses, a divorce happened this way. The husband wrote it out, he handed it to the wife, and they were divorced. She didn't have any say about it. Nope, just handed it to her. They're divorced. Like I said, no woman I know wants to go back to that world. And so God is saying, okay, yes, you've been in exile, but show me the certificate of divorce. There isn't one. That isn't what's been happening. Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of practice, um, also in the law of Moses, in the ancient world, common to cultures, was that if you were in debt, 
you could sell yourself for a period of time or sell one of your children outright or for a period of time in order to satisfy that debt. And so God says, to which of my creditors did I sell you? And the answer is none. Neither of those are the explanation for why the Israelites are in Babylon. So go on. Because of your sins, you were sold into slavery. It's just a metaphor for it. Because of your sins, not to settle God's debts. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away, but not divorced. See, being sent away allows she can come back and you can go on together. A divorce is, doesn't allow for that. Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. That is the, that is the Old Testament understanding, the Israelite understanding of how they ended up in this predicament. Why are they in exile? Why are they in jail in, with the Babylonians being their jailers? Because of their sins, their faithfulness. Nothing arbitrary about it. Nothing unfair about it. Nothing unjust about it. They had failed to live up to the promises that they had made to their God. They had failed to keep the covenant that their ancestors had entered into and each generation had accepted. And that is what led to their exile. Verse 2. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to deliver, to rescue you? Because they're going to be, there were a lot of Israelites who did not, who were very reluctant to, to choose to move back because they'd been in Babylon for decades, right? 50 years before Cyrus becomes the king of Persia. And in 50 years, what, do you, what, what happens? In 50 years, you have a couple of generations. You get established, you have your homes, you got, you got, you got your schools, you got everything. And so now they're supposed to pick up. Many of these people don't have any memory of Jerusalem. They were born after they left Jerusalem. Now they're supposed to pick up and move back to Jerusalem. And so God is trying to say to them, yes, 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 you need to come back. You need to go home. You need to trust me. I showed up and told you to do it. Nobody's hearing me. Nobody's listening to me. Do you not think, do you think my arm is too short to deliver you? Do you think I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert and their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. This is the God who created everything that there is. Who, if God chooses, has all the power to do with God's creation anything God wishes. It's never a problem of God's power. It's only a matter of what God chooses to do. 
He says, verse 3, I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. Even God is the one who separated the light from the darks, right? So all of this is, of course, conjuring, is bringing to mind what? The opening chapters of Genesis. The opening verses of Genesis. Let there be light. And the rest of it. And now the servant speaks. The sovereign Yahweh has given me a well-instructed tongue. <laughs> a well-instructed tongue to know the word that what? That conquers the world? That unlocks the secrets of nature? No. The word that sustains the weary. Not the small little verse, but I think it's pretty significant. Because many phrases could go there about all the things that a well-instructed tongue, instructed by God, is about. But it's to know the word that sustains the weary. For a people who are suffering, these are words of comfort and encouragement. Their God has not forgotten them. Their God brings to them words that will sustain them in their weariness, in their tiredness, in their suffering. You know, it isn't any wonder that so many African-American spirituals that came out of the, the, the days of African slavery in America are carry these biblical passages as the lyrics and as the images. Right? Because they were oppressed and they were weary and they were tired and families were separated and so forth. And, and if you read this, try to read this through those eyes, it's often very striking. There's a young black theologian at Wheaton. I think he's at Wheaton right now. Named Esau Macaulay who is getting increasingly known. Um, and he wrote a book called Reading While Black. I think that's what he called it. Reading While Black. Reading scripture through the eyes of a black person, through the eyes of the black experience in America, through the eyes of, of African slavery in America. And that's where the spirituals come from. And they're grounded... In scriptures, passages like this, to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. How hard is it to hear God? Um, Patty and I were sitting here just a few minutes ago, funerals before class, and we both commented on how quiet it is right now. Stonebriar tends to be a pretty quiet place, but all you could hear, and even right, right now I don't even hear the little insects out there. It's quiet. When Patty, I, when Patty and I are in bed at night and we're going to say our prayers, it's just so quiet. But our lives can be so noisy 
just just this cacophony of noises and sounds coming in. How could you possibly expect to hear God through all that? So, he wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. That's who God is. Like, wakens me like one being instructed. You see, this is what my sermon was about yesterday. Torah, the law, is about God's teachings, about, about being instructed, about God's character, human nature, the truth about humanity, the truth about God's rescue project, um, the truth about how we're to live with God and live with others. All of that has to be taught to us. It is not something we know by just by virtue of being born. We have to be, we have to be taught it, and and taught it in cultures. This is true across the board for all time. Just don't view it as a problem in nineteen twenty in in twenty twenty one. In cultures in which there are a whole lot of opposing messages being poured into us. Right? And all the time God is reaching and saying, push that stuff aside. Let me teach you. Let me teach you. He wakens my ears to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Yahweh, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. You know, we, we would often put open my eyes, right? Maybe open my heart. I don't know how often we would use the phrase opened my ears. I've got to write a pastoral prayer for this weekend. and I don't know. I may come back to this passage for some of that. The sovereign Yahweh has opened my ears. We live at a time when people are so anxious to to be heard without seeming to care at all about hearing. Right? They want to, as the prayer we say on every Sunday right now, it goes, they want to be understood. They don't care much about understanding. God teaches us to listen. To listen to God to listen to others because out of that listening you can find eat with others you can find you can find common ground with people we are all made in the image of God so the sovereign Lord has opened my ears I have not been rebellious I have not turned away this is verse 5 now of course as a Christian I will tell you, I see in these servant passages Jesus. Sure, of course I do. God instructed him. Jesus listened. He revealed the depth of that listening when he was lost in the home alone story in Luke's gospel when he is you know, left behind in Jerusalem and he's at the temple and people are amazed at his understanding. He listened to God's instructions. He listened to God's teachings. Jesus wasn't re 
did not rebel against God. He didn't turn away from God. He didn't turn away from the vocation that he was given. And the, the words that you could use there that would be a positive word, because these are both negative, I have not been, I have not, is I have been faithful. I have been faithful. That would be the positive way to express it. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. Ridicule did not keep Jesus from his teachings, from telling the truth, from his vocation, from his path all the way to the cross. We Christians can't let ridicule pull us away from God's truth. There's a lot of ridiculing of Christians, and much of it we Christians bring on themselves. There's a lot of people that out there doing and saying things in the name of Jesus that just makes my head spin, and I just want to tell them to shut up. Because <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's, it's not a good witness. The Apostle Paul, his teachings are all about building up the church and being a good witness. We have to be aware of that all the time. And... If that brings ridicule, as it did to Paul time after time after time after time, so be it. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I didn't hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Yahweh helps me, I will not be disgraced. Okay? You might be disgraced in the eyes of the world, but who cares? That isn't, that isn't where our attention needs to be. This is hard. <laughs> At least it is for me. This is hard. Sure, I want people's approval. I don't want to be disgraced in the eyes of the world. But when I get this right, I am concerned about being disgraced in the eyes of God. Being disgraced in the eyes of the world is a different thing. Being accepted by the world is should not be my goal. I want God to accept me and God to approve of what I do and for God to approve of what my work is, for God to approve to look down kindly on a sermon I preach or a class I teach or something like that or how I treat my wife or treat my family or other people that I run into in the course of my life. I should I want I want God's smile around all of that. If the world smiles some of it at some of it too fine, but nah, it's about God. Verse seven, second part, part B, therefore I have set my face like flint. And I know I will not be put to shame. Flint is a rock, right? So I'm, 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 I'm going to do this. Um, I just flashed to Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. He wants another way forward. There won't be one. There isn't one other than being unfaithful to God. And so Jesus has to set himself. Set my face like flint. There's this famous line in Luke. Luke at the end of Luke 9, maybe, where Jesus says, 
where it says, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Whew. Okay, we're going to go. We're going to, we're doing this. We're doing this. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean he wants to. But he sets his face toward Jerusalem. The servant here sets his face like flint. And he will not be put to shame. Might be shame in the world's eyes, but not in God's eyes. And 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 see, you and I live in a in, in a culture, sure, guilt and shame and those things, those words we use, but but we don't live here in America in a culture driven, driven by the gathering of honor in the avoiding of shame. Their world was. Much of the Mediterranean still is. Everything is about gathering honor to yourself, gathering reputation, gathering social approval to yourself, and avoiding shame, avoiding humiliation. It, I think it's a little similar in, um, in, in large parts of Asia. I know I've read some things from missionaries who work in Japan and other countries, and they have to talk about the good news differently. Because here we will talk about guilt and sin and so forth. They said in these cultures they have to talk about uh, about about shame and alleviating shame and so forth. I'm, I wouldn't pretend to to know much about it, but they just say, yeah, it's it's different. And this culture that Jesus is part of, and that this servant is part of, and that Isaiah is part of, these are honor and shame cultures. Verse eight. He who vindicates me, that would be a reference to God, the servant says, is near. Vindicate means to clear somebody. It's to, it's to show that they were in the right. He's withstood all this stuff. The spitting, the beer pulling, the, the blows on the back, ridicule, whatever it might be. But God vindicates him. God is the vindicator. He who vindicates me is near. So who then will bring charges against me? If God vindicates me, who will bring charges against me, the servant says. Who will have that much nerve? That much gall? He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord, the Sovereign Yahweh. That is the name of God there again. You see the small caps? Lord, it is the Sovereign, the God, our King, our King Yahweh, who helps me. So who will condemn me? Ah, all those people who condemn me, they're going to wear out like a garment. The moths are going to eat them up. There's no permanence to them. Who in whom can we find prominence? God. So, any thoughts or observations, Patty? I was, I'll be honest, I, I was very interested in the line of Jesus putting his face towards Jerusalem. So I was just looking to see if anything had been written about it, and I found something very interesting that a okay. pastor had wrote. He said, here is what Jerusalem meant for Jesus. 
I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And that was uh, Luke 13. Jerusalem meant one thing for Jesus, certain death. Nor was he under any illusion of a quick and heroic death. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. When Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, he set his face to die. That's why Isaiah is so often read as it was so foundational Christian understanding and Christian scripture and yes. Christian, under, Christian interpretation of the Bible with respect to with respect to Jesus and what Jesus was about. Exactly. Thank you, Patty. So, okay, verse 10. Verse 10 is filled with problems and in translation and interpretation because when it's just not clear who the references who the referent is with regard to the pronouns and so all the translations they do their best but there there's a lot of of disagreement about how to translate the ins and outs of verse 10 but here's how the NIV does it who among you fears Yahweh that means understands that God is God and you are not and obeys the word of his servant. Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. So the NIV translators kind of go in and they clean it up and, and as best they think it, it should be. Um, and this is, this is a verse about a challenge to those who continue to walk in the darkness, who have no light, and a call for them to trust in the name of the Lord. Other translations are not as clear because they leave, they leave the ambiguity that's there in the Hebrew. See what I mean? Mm -hmm. You can always clean it up. But the question is, did you clean it up correctly? Well, people just don't agree. So, But anyway... At least verse 10 in the NIV, I can understand. <laughs> verse 11. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you will receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Okay? Um, so... What's with the fires and the torches and all that stuff? Well, there are people who are walking in the darkness, that means without God, trying to light their own way. That's what it's about. And it doesn't work. We cannot light our own way. Like that verse in Judges I used again yesterday in my sermon everyone the problem in Israel at the time of the judges was that everyone did what was right in their own eyes and that's chaos that's anarchy that it it, it when everyone does what's right in their own eyes you are reduced to nothing but sheer power 
sheer power. The strongest, most powerful will prevail in what they see as being right. And the weakest will get lost and run over. And so, no. So, in, in coming to an understanding of what is right, you have to come out of the darkness into the light, and that light is the truth that God has revealed to us. So, anything right there, Patty? Anything else? Nope, nope. nope that's... Okay, so, chapter 51. God is going to try to convince them, remind them of who they are, these Babylonian exiles, and call them home. Hmm. Scott? Yeah. Once they were brought, we I know the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and those kind of things, but were, were any of these Israelites, were any of them allowed to practice their faith in Babylon at all? Had they forgotten my about it? My understanding is that they were generally left alone. But you see, when you're in a foreign land, it's awful tempting to become yes. like those lands, right? Yes. To go along, to get along. And so the constant theme in, in the Old Testament is that when you are confronted with these choices to remain true to God, but the temptation is always there. Imagine somebody says, you know, you, you, have, a, you have a Jewish family living, and the, they want to do trade of some kind, right? And in order to do that trade with their customers, they're expected to go down with their customers and, and make some offering at some temple to some pagan person or or go to a restaurant to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols or something, you know, whatever. And um, they have to decide to what to what extent they will go to do that. The most striking example to me comes from Jesus' day. It's that, and we know for a fact that in Jesus' day, there were Jewish men who were so desirous of making their way in the larger world that they undid, tried to undo cosmetically their circumcision. Wow. So they could go down to the local, you know, Greek gymnasium with the other guys. And when they were like doing their <coughs> Olympic naked thing, their, the other men wouldn't know that these guys were Jewish. And of course, by basically undoing their circumcision, what did that do? Placed them outside the people of God. The people of God were the ones who circumcised their male children. So if you try to undo that in order to make your way in the larger world, well, you're placing your out, yourself outside God's people. So, um, And now, as I said a few minutes ago, these, these exiles in Babylon have been there for decades. So right, it's 2021 right now. So 50 years ago was 1971. Two. 
Okay, it's 2022 right now. So, oh man. So, it's like they arrived in Babylon in 1972 when Richard Nixon was president. And now God is showing up saying, okay, go on back to Jerusalem. And a lot of them don't want to. And in fact, the truth is, quite a few don't. The book of Esther is set in the Jewish community in Persia, the community of Jews in Persia who never go back. There have been Jews in Persia for the last 2,500 years. And they, they are the, you know, descendants of Jews who were exiled there and just, just didn't return. But what's ha- what we're reading here is this appeal from God to return. So God says in verse chapter 51, verse 1, um, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek Yahweh. Look, look to the rock from which you were cut, to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called Abraham, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. Genesis 12, 3. I will give you descendants more numerous than the stars, God tells Abraham. And we discover that Sarah is an essential part of that project. It is really the two of them that will bear these, that will have these descendants, right? And so for all... So this family of Abraham becomes Israel, becomes the Jews. These people, this is the call to what? To remember your roots. Verse 3. Yahweh will surely comfort Zion, Israel, and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. So come on back. (laughs) Right? So come on back. You know, and of course many do. And the story of those returns are told in Ezra and Nehemiah. And with their return with great joy and anticipation, and it just doesn't ever seem to be. It, these seem like way over-optimistic promises, oversold promises about what it's going to be like because when they get back, all they really do for 500 years is trade one pagan ruler for another. Even during the Maccabean Revolt, that turned out to be a big disappointment because the Hasmonean family, they were pretty darn comfortable, you know, in that larger Greco-Roman world. Um, and that's why, that's why there's, there's such a sense by the time you come to Jesus and Rome, Rome has been um, in control of, of Judea and Galilee for... 60 years when Jesus is born. And so you come to the time of Jesus 
And it's understandable that there were Jews who were asking the question, well, where is God? I guess God's promises aren't ever going to be kept. I can pick up and I can read here in the scrolls. That isn't, that isn't the Israel I know. That isn't the Jerusalem I know. And so part of what Paul does in his, in his letters is a defense of God, really, to say that, yes, but the keeping of this promise is Jesus and the fulfillment of all of this awaits the consummation of God's kingdom with the return of Jesus. Verse 4, this is God going on. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction, teaching will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. Right? This is the goal. This is a, this is a description of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God rules, manifestly, for everybody to see. Okay? And, and, and God's justice, God's righteousness, expressed throughout Scripture from beginning to end, will be the light for all peoples, all nations, all the tribes, all the folks. Everyone will understand that, to quote Micah, they're to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And we could go through and quote five pages of passages about what righteousness truly is, what doing right really is. But it's meant for everybody. My arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait and hope for my arm. This is the arm of God, the arm of strength who can accomplish this. The islands, of course, represent the distant nations. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Keep your eyes on the right, in the right, focused at the right person. Keep your eyes focused upon God. My salvation will last forever. Even the heavens and the earth will wear out. <laughs> There's some time period I've read where like the sun is only going to last so long. Right? I figure that is as late as Jesus can wait to come back. So, anyway... My salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Hear me, you who know what is right. And how do they know what is right? Because they listen to God. Look back at the first verse. Um, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Those who pursue what is right. Those who understand what is right. Those who know what is right. Right, right, right. Verse 7, hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have taken my instruction to heart. That's how they know what is right. It isn't because they just found it locked away in their hearts. What they found in their hearts was a distortion. 
a distortion. That's the worst thing about, about sin is it takes a good thing and distorts it. It takes human sexuality and distorts it into selfish lust. It takes a simple means of economic exchange and turns it into greed. Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have taken my instruction to heart. Do not fear the reproach of mere mortals or be terrified by their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment. The worm will devour them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever, my salvation through all generations. Don't be deluded. Don't chase the bug light. <laughs> I always flash to that moment, and I guess the movie was called A Bug's Life or something. Mm -hmm. Went, oh, it's so pretty, it's so pretty. As the, then zap, you know, the, yeah. Don't be like that. Put your trust in God. This is, you know, I've, we just spent a number of weeks in Revelation, and then we have this whole summer of Revelation, and the, the materials are all up on the church's website and stuff. That book is about what these verses are talking about. Trusting God. Trusting God. God wins. God's righteousness will last forever. God's salvation through all generations. So now the servant calls out. Awake! Awake! arm of the Lord, right, which is a call to action, call to action on God's part. Clothe yourself with might, God. Awake, as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Well, that is a quickly and easily misread verse because in the book of Joshua, we meet the prostitute named Rahab who saves the the Israelite spies, right? Yes. That's not this Rahab. This Rahab, this Rahab comes out of Mesopotamian creation myths. Rahab was this mighty dragon in these creation myths, and of course it's a way of saying that the creation myths of the Mesopotamians and the Babylonians and the rest are all nothing. It's all about God. Yahweh is not mentioned in the Mesopotamian creation myths, but God is the one who cut the dragon Rahab to pieces. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that he redeemed, so that the redeemed might cross over? What's that? What's the first tender reference to? It's like a little pop quiz. Who dried up the sea, like red, the Red Sea? There you go. Yeah. So that the redeemed might cross over. The Exodus. The Exodus always looms large over the Hebrew Scriptures. It is the great salvation event. And so they're just, it's just place after place after place. Sometimes a reference to the Exodus is obvious. 
Sometimes it's not so much. Sometimes it's as small as I called my son out of Egypt. And that's it. So it would bring to, to the listeners, to the readers, instantly going to be brought back to the Exodus, which is a story of how God had saved them. Verse 11. Those Yahweh has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now God speaks again. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mere mortals, my people? human beings who are but grass. You don't need to fear these Babylonians. And the Persians, who am, who am I? Who are you to fear these people? They're like grass. You're God's people. You know that there is even more to you than this life. Anyway, verse 13. Let me start in verse 12 again. Sometimes I just... I get going. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mere mortals, human beings who are but grass, that you forget Yahweh your maker, who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, that you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor who is bent on destruction. You know, this is... For where is the wrath of the oppressor? This is God appealing to his people to not live their lives in fear. And this is an appeal made to a people who don't have our knowledge and understanding of resurrection. Resurrection will be a developing and blooming um, Jewish belief leading up to the time of Jesus. But we're Christians. We know that Jesus was resurrected. We, we should not live in fear. We know that death is not our end. We, we, we should not fear the sword. Deaths are sad, filled with grief because they create separation one loved one from another. But it's not our end. We do not go gentle into that good night as if we were a, um, a candle whose flame is distinguished. That's not, that's not it. There is a life after death and a life after life after death. We shall be resurrected. And that, that's the understanding you have to bring to your life. Don't live in constant terror every day. Verse 14. The cowering prisoners will soon be set free. They will not die in their dungeon, nor will they lack bread. For I am Yahweh your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. 
I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. So trust me, God says. And what is the, if you were to step away from this as Christians, what is the evidence that we should trust God? The most direct evidence, what makes Christianity Christianity, is the truth of the resurrection. That is the linchpin. If it happened, of course we're going to trust God. If it's a lie, we need to go be, go do something else with our time. But it did happen. Jesus was resurrected. We are Easter people for that reason. So, okay. Any thoughts or questions, Patty? No. No, the group's been okay. really quiet today, huh. so okay. are we going to well, go on here? Or no, I think we're going to stop right here. Okay. Because it's, it's a fairly long section from there onward, and there may be things there that I want to say or talk about, and I think we'll just save that for next week. So we will come back to, where did, where are we? We're 51 verse 17. Okay, we'll start. 51 verse 17. We'll come back there next week. No, we won't. Why? What's next week? July the 4th is next Monday. Wow! Is it that right? That's right. Okay, everybody listen. No <laughs> class next Monday. <laughs> I may be enthusiastic about this, but yeah. The 4th of July is going to be the 4th of July. I know we don't know what we're going to do. I really don't. But the 4th of July is the 4th of July. That's right. So we will be back in class in two weeks. I should have made up a slide about that if I had been thinking this morning, but most people. I was a little, yeah. Most people would imagine, that, yeah. you know, it's not like some of the holidays we have that are kind of, yes, kind of, kind of question. You know, are we going to meet or not? Yeah. But Fourth of July, church is closed, everything closes, and we will not. We'll be back on the eleventh then. Yes. Yes. Right. Seven and four. How's my arithmetic? <laughs> very good. <laughs> okay. Very, very good. Well, you got it, Patty. The, you take the wheel. Okay. Um, somehow we're not in here right today, but there, I guess there we are. Uh, anyway, thank you guys. Thank you, everybody who was with us today. And uh, hopefully we'll see you tomorrow, either in person down in Puro Hall or online at 12 o'clock. Um, please, if you've never come on Tuesday, come. Um, we're doing First Corinthians. You can come at any time. There's about 50 to 60 people that come to the class live and another number of people that are listening online. And everybody's friendly. If you don't want to talk to anybody, you don't have to. People <laughs> you can bring, bring a lunches. lunch. You don't have to bring your lunch. Just just come. It's it's really a nice way to um, to break up your day. And, and it's all through at uh, 115. So Indeed it is. Anyway, please join with me as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this class. We thank you, God, for our church, St. Andrew. And Lord, we thank you for Scott's teaching today. We pray, God, that you would watch over this group, Lord. Keep us close. Um, we have been meeting this way for many, many years in person and then only online and now back in person. And Lord, you have kept this group together.
and we're grateful for that. We pray, God, that we know um, that a group this size, that there are many people who have joys and concerns on their hearts today. We all do, Lord. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would lift those joys and concerns to you now. We pray, God, also for our family and our friends that you would watch over and take care of us. We pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives to help us make good decisions every day, Lord, the decisions that would make Jesus happy. Lord, we are grateful for this day, and we pray that you'll just watch over us the rest of the day today. Um, we thank you, Lord, so much for the gift of your son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Bye, everybody. Adios. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.